Up to a third of complaints received by state medical societies are for disruptive behavior. Often disruptive behavior is tolerated until a crisis emerges, which then triggers disciplinary action. How else might we handle this very delicate situation? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is William Swigert. Mr. Swigert is the co-director for the Center for Professional Health at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Uh, Bill, tell us about the Center for Professional Health. Well, we are a center that actually was established in the uh, late 90s, and we really began as a continuing medical education center to deal with physicians who got in trouble for misprescribing scheduled drugs. And then shortly after that, we added a course on sexual boundary violations for physicians who get in some trouble for a variety of sexual boundary issues, maybe as serious as having an affair with a patient or staff or sexual uh, harassment charges or just inappropriate behavior, joking, those kinds of things. So we run a a, a pretty uh, large gamut of problems. We're a national program, so we get referrals from really from all over the country to uh, our courses. Our courses are run on about a three-day format, a pretty intense CME activity. And then most recently, uh, we added a third course on disruptive behavior that we call the Program for Distressed Physicians. And how did that program begin? Well, it began because, one, we noticed that there was a big need in the country, and both a need for physicians to learn alternative behaviors to deal with their frustrations and issues, and for institutions, practices, hospitals, uh, so forth, to uh, have a strategy for working with these docs that they want to keep, that are valuable members of the medical community, but their behavior is causing problems that make it hard for them to work with. So is this a CME course or is this a separate treatment program? It's a CME course. Hmm. One term I like to use is we're a mid-level response, that there are certainly people who can make uh, corrections in their behavior with less intervention, and there are certainly some people that need maybe to leave their practice or maybe to get real psychiatric treatment to deal with their behavior, and then there's those in the middle that uh, hopefully an educational approach can be beneficial and, and, and workable. And, and I guess I'm just not clear why a CME course versus what we would consider to be a traditional treatment kind of program. Well, a couple of reasons. One, I think it destigmatizes the intervention for the physician themselves. Two, I think that a lot of the issues around uh, lack of skills, lack of alternative behaviors, and a CME course is a perfect venue for teaching some of those uh, behaviors and skills that the physician may not have learned any other way. Now, I know at our Professional Society in Psychiatry at the APA, you also give this course. Correct. We offered it for the first time uh, last year, and we'll be offering it again in uh, San Francisco. So at least for psychiatrists, that would be a way for people interested to, to receive this information. Correct. Are you planning to do that with other specialties? I haven't as of yet. We've um, done some grand rounds at some different places and have talked to some medical boards uh, around the country, but that's about all we can put on our plate right now. I would think you're really busy. Now, where do your referrals come from? You said nationally, but who typically refers physicians to you? Normally, 
uh, in our other courses, it's physicians' health programs and physician boards and, to a smaller degree, lawyers. For this course, the refers tend to be uh, large practices or large groups or hospitals, areas that really this kind of behavior doesn't come before the board or the physician's health program uh, regularly like maybe misprescribing might or something else. So they're uh, really the, these practices that are interested. And what do the physicians that are referred to you, what do they do while they're there? Several things. We uh, spend some time looking at uh, what I would call both internal and external factors. So what kind of skills or deficits did you come to the practice with uh, that we can can teach? And uh, then some external things. What are some things you can change? How can you do some things uh, uh, differently so that you're not the uh, eye of the storm anymore or uh, not attracting the wrong kind of attention? Is there one specialty that might be overrepresented among disruptive physicians? You know, this is the place where we say surgeons are terrible, but uh, actually uh, they're they're not necessarily overly represented. What is represented highly are interventionalists. So whether they're from internal medicine or surgery or or whatever, it's those interventionalists that seem to be the heavy hitters. Uh, We get about 20% from either specialty or general surgery. Uh, About 25% are medicine specialties. And then OBGYN, anesthesiology, neurology, others are psychiatrists or two. Oh, no, don't tell oh, me that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I guess uh, we're human after all, huh? Absolutely. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is William Swigert. We are discussing what to do about the disruptive physician. Uh, Bill, what interventions typically occur before the physicians come to your CME course? Well, a variety of things. Uh, sometimes there's a confrontation by the practice manager or the or the group. I remember one physician whose uh, practice got together and uh, told him he was taking a month off and that uh, he had a month to figure out what to do about his behavior. He found us uh, uh, that way. But others have been assessed. Uh, sometimes the group or hospital or entity will will uh, mandate or suggest a full psychiatric psychiatric assessment. Occasionally, there's a formal disciplinary action by a credentialing board or or a medical board of some sort. And um, but that's uh, actually fairly rare, uh, at least with our referrals, that uh, uh, being disruptive in a hospital generally doesn't violate board action. So generally the practices and and uh, a few from lawyers, physicians uh, felt threatened and, and hired legal counsel and sometimes they've suggested that as part of their working out their situation that this course might be a good alternative. Mm-hmm. And what have the results been for the physicians who've completed your program? Well, I think actually pretty good. We have a paper that came out in uh, Physician Executive which has the kind of results of our initial study. And uh, it was interesting that physicians often overestimate how well they're liked and appreciated on the initial kind of pre-course study. Their colleagues and other staff tend to rate their improvement, though, higher than they do. 
found that interesting that they either overestimated themselves or underestimated how much they had changed. So it indicates to me that often these physicians have not a great idea about how they come across, how people are perceiving them, which I think can be part of the issue, that if they're not kind of able to read social cues from those around them, then it's awfully hard to know how they're coming across. Well, and of course, that seems to me the most important measure of change is what their coworkers and colleagues think of Absolutely, because their coworkers and colleagues are what's driving their attendance. So, absolutely. Yeah. Now, thinking about our listeners, and perhaps there's somebody out there that does work in a group practice setting or, or in a hospital, and there is a fellow physician that perhaps meets some of the criteria as being a disruptive physician. You know, I would think, certainly with me, and I'm sure I'm not alone, here that the tendency is for us not to act on it, to hope that it's going to go away or that the person's going to go away and that we don't have to uh, voice our concerns in a public sort of way. Um, What are the consequences of disruptive physician behavior if we don't address it earlier? Well, lots of different kinds of consequences. Some are uh, staff turnover. I heard a, a nurse talk the other day that said that they drew straws to see who worked with uh, Dr. So-and-so in the uh, emergency room because he was so disruptive. So staff turnover, staff morale, uh, obviously one of the sticking points is if physicians are verbally disruptive and angry and demeaning, a nurse or or colleague may be less apt to report a problem or make a phone call so that sometimes they don't get information that they need because of their attitude. I think patient care can suffer sometimes for some of the same reasons, but a lot of the problems tend to be around staff. That actually leads me to another question. Do patients see this behavior in their physicians who are disruptive? Or, or are, are people able to compartmentalize and only act like this among their colleagues and keep it from the patients? Well, sometimes it's not the patient that gets the brunt of it. For instance, if you're a surgeon, you come to him and you want to sign up for a surgery and he's a bully and he gets the first operating room in the morning, gets you the best time and gets your operation a week before somebody else might have, then you're going to think he's a pretty great guy. A lot of the positions that we get are going to be ones that have problem with staff as opposed to the uh, though there are some that, that might have a high complaint ratio from patients, and they'll come to the administrator or the practice leader's attention in, in that way. How can our listeners find out more information about the Center for Professional Health? Well, we have a website, and on that website, we have uh, all the papers that we've written. There are links to them so that they're, uh, we've written papers on each course and a couple of other things, so that's uh, certainly available. And what's the website address? Uh, the website is www.mc.vanderbilt.edu uh, forward slash CPH. CPH for Center for Professional, for Professional Health. Health. The easiest way to probably do it is to Google Center for Professional Health, and we usually come up first or second on that. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Well, thank you. I'd like to thank our guest today, William Swigert, who is the co-director for the Center for Professional Health at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. We've been discussing what to do about the disruptive physician. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com. 
If you register with the promo code RADIO, you will receive six months of free streaming for your home or your office. If you have comments or suggestions or questions, please give us a ring at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Rondi Hagerman, Professor of Pediatrics at the UC Davis Mind Institute. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Here is a sample of the great shows airing this week. I'm Dr. Larry Casco. Please tune in to the next Business of Medicine. I'll be talking with Mark Herman, a partner at Jones Day, and we're going to be talking about why, if at all, doctors should worry about preemption and what preemption is. Please tune in. This is Dr. Jennifer Hsu. This week we'll be speaking with Jeffrey Hageman, an epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. We'll be talking about the National MRSA Education Initiative. And I'm Dr. Bruce Bloom, inviting you to tune in this week to a special public policy segment when our guest will be Dr. Jordan Berlin at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. We will be discussing the impact of cutbacks in federal funding for cancer research. Thank you for listening to ReachMD XM157, where we change topics every 15 minutes. For our complete weekly guest and program guide, visit us at ReachMD.com.